morning. If you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13, or flipping your phones over there, open up to that passage. Um, you know, it's amazing how often um, passages of Scripture can be misunderstood and misapplied. Uh, you know, we know as believers we're supposed to love people. It's one of the most significant things about being a Christian. We also can read the things in Scripture that talk about discipline, confrontation. And there, it is so easy for us to read those things, either one of them, and misapply them. Uh, you've often heard that the church is like a hospital. Uh, if you're in trouble, if you're sick, if you're struggling with sin, the church is where you should come, right? I mean, that's, what, that, that's how Jesus was. The sinners loved being around Jesus. They were running to Jesus. Uh, he ate with the tax gatherers and sinners. Um, and so we, we see that, yeah, that is something that we need to do. And then you've heard also about churches that uh, they say it's a hospital, but the church shoots its wounded. Have you ever heard about that? The church can be a brutal place where when you're struggling, you are injured, you are harmed. And it is so important for us to read all of what God's word says and to be very diligent and very careful to understand what God says and to not disregard anything that he tells us. So I want to read a passage, and um, we're going to read uh, this whole chapter again. This is our part two of this passage, and I want to read it, and this is something that many churches just disregard, and just people as Christians, they read what is in this chapter and just say, yeah, no way, I'm not doing that. And I just want you to know that, that as, a, as a pastor, I am not going to approach scripture that way, and as a church, we should not approach Scripture that way. And we also should not abuse what Scripture says. We should not use passages like this um, to justify being hard on people, being harsh with people, and applying it in an inappropriate way. So let's read this passage, and then we're going to talk more about it. 1 Corinthians 5.1 says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought not you rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with you, um, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or, or the greedy or swin and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. 
But I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. You know, those verses are shocking, and it's hard to know what to do with them exactly unless you are a person who reads the Bible. Um, if you start reading the Bible in Genesis and you read through the whole Old Testament, and then you read the New Testament, the whole thing from beginning to end, you read this passage. If you're a person, if you're a student of Scripture, if you read everything in the Bible, you will not read this and struggle to know how to apply it. You will not read this and go, oh, I'm not doing that. Forget that. That's terrible. Um, you will not be a person who is judgmental and harsh and who destroys people who are struggling with sin. Because the Bible, as a whole, puts everything in context. You know, one of the most amazing things is that um, anytime you read a passage of Scripture, any one, you, you could struggle to understand, well, what does this verse mean? But if you've read the whole Bible and you've read the stories of how God interacts with people and what happens in a person's life when they disregard God and disobey God, you read the Old Testament and we just see what happens <laughs> to people who do that. We see how incredibly destructive sin is. We realize that sin is cause for, it's a crisis, it is an emergency, it is a call for intervention. And, and that's not confusing, that's not hard to understand. We also understand that God is loving and merciful and patient and gracious and forgiving. And when you read the whole Bible, you know how to put those in context. You want to know what's super sad? <laughs> there are so many Christians, man, they've been in church for 20, 30 years, and they've never read the Bible. Uh, they've gone to churches where they sit in Sunday school, and they get lessons about how to be brave. But, but they don't learn what does God say and how do we live in light of that. You know, this individual was in trouble because of the neglect of the church. Uh, we don't help people, well we do, but the goal is not to help people when they've walked down the road to destruction and, and we're, they're just about to fall off the edge of the cliff and that's when we try to step in. Hey, sometimes that's the reality, that's where it is and we do try to help just as people are falling off, off a cliff. But that is not the time we're supposed to be helping people. If you have young kids, um, you help your kids deal with sin issues that they haven't faced yet. Um, sexual immorality, submission to authority, how to think about the world. Those are things that you train and teach two, three, four, five-year-olds. When a person becomes a Christian, we immediately start teaching them how to think about the world. We correct all their worldly ideas. But what's sad about the church and what's sad about families is often we sit quietly. We neglect the reading and teaching of God's word until people's lives are on the edge of disaster. 
and, and we define all of that as loving, gracious, merciful, when actually the Bible tells us that it's hatred. You know, the Bible says if you don't discipline your son, it's because you hate him. And so the, the church has redefined uh, what is truly hatred. They define that as loving and grace and sensitivity. So um, here's what we know about sin, if you read the Old Testament, is that it separates us from God. Jesus died because of sin so that we could be forgiven. Sin's a big deal. We know that sin destroys everyone who participates in it. It destroys you in this life, and it will destroy you for eternity. Um, I used to, as a kid growing up, I used to feel like, man, if I become a Christian, I'd go to heaven, but then I have to live a miserable life on this earth. And I remember, like, being in junior high, just thinking, man, I wish I was never born because I need to have fun today. And, and you know, eternity, man, that's, that's a long way off. I'm young. I got a lot of life ahead of me. I'm not going to be miserable and suffer until I finally die, and then I'll be rewarded in heaven. And, and I just, you know, was committed to living a life of sin because I needed fun now. Just so you know, that is a lie from Satan. Everybody who disregards God in this life for fun, to be satisfied, to be fulfilled, is destroying themselves. And what's sad is there's a ton of people in the church, and this probably happened to you, where you'll look at somebody who's choosing a sinful lifestyle. And in the back of your mind, you think to yourself, well, I know God says that's wrong, but really, I mean, that person is so alone and they're so sad and they just really want a relationship. And so even though the relationship they want to pursue is sinful, it's actually better for them. They'll have companionship. They'll have love. And we actually look at people who pursue things that will destroy them and destroy others around them. And in our minds, we feel like actually they're better off and they're happier. And that is true for people who don't read the Bible. Um, we also know that sin harms others. All sin is destruction, destructive to everybody who's involved in it. You know, it's like we have this thing of we have two consult, consenting adults. Uh, they want to do some sinful things, but it, it's not hurting anybody. Wrong. Every time a person sins, they damage themselves. Every time you involve another person in sin, you're damaging that other person. And what the Bible tells us is this, and this is true of God, it's true of what he says in his word, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Man, a, a friend, a person who really loves you, they'll, a, a parent who really loves their kids will say and do things that are uncomfortable because it's in their best interests. But if you actually hate somebody, then you'll give them lots of kisses, you'll tell them they're okay. Somebody will come to you and say, oh, I'm really struggling with my spiritual condition, whether or not I'm a Christian, and they're living this open, rebellious life in Christ. And if you hate them, you'll say, well, I think you're a Christian. I remember when you prayed a prayer. It's like the Holy Spirit is convicting someone's heart. And I've seen so many Christians have those conversations and just try to say things that they think are nice, and they just remove the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's hatred. Uh, the Bible also tells us this in Galatians 6.1, 
Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Our interaction with people who are struggling in sin needs to be careful, needs to be gentle. People are such a treasure. They are so valuable. They're, they're, they are people made in God's image. And God wants us to love each other, to encourage each other, to rescue people. The same way sinners ran to Jesus, if you're struggling in sin, if you're having problems, if you're compromising in your life, you should run to the pastors in your church. You should go to the elders. You should go to brothers and sisters in Christ and say, I did this terrible thing and I need help. And you should feel loved and encouraged and welcomed. You should, it's like running to a hospital where there's a doctor who will love you, who will care for you, who will help you. The church should not be a brutal place that is kicking people when they're hurting. You know, the Bible tells us this in Ezekiel, so God talks to Ezekiel. And this is true for every Christian, so this applies to you. It's an example. God said it to Ezekiel in the Old Testament, an Old Testament prophet. But not only was it true for Ezekiel, it is actually true for every one of us. And he basically tells Ezekiel, I've made you a watchman over Israel, over my sheep. It is your job to deliver the message that I give you. And if you go to Israel and you deliver the message, you tell them what I said, and they disregard you, their blood's on their own head but you're okay because you delivered the message I gave you. But if you don't warn them, their blood is on your head. And so one of the things as Christians, we have a responsibility to tell people in our life the truth, to share the gospel, to address sin in the lives of the people that God's put around us. And if we just sit there and ignore it, if you know of somebody that has chosen to live in hard-hearted rebellion and you disregard that, hey, they're responsible for their life, but you are responsible for how you interact with those people. You know, Acts chapter 20, verse 26, Paul says this. He's talking about his ministry, and he says, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. Like, Paul looks back at this passage in Ezekiel and he applies it to himself, and he says, I'm innocent. Why? He goes on to say, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He avoided, he did not avoid anything in the Bible because it was uncomfortable, because it wouldn't be popular, because people wouldn't like it. Um, so let's just talk about this for a second. If we do the right thing, does that always guarantee a good outcome? No. I think about Genesis 4. This is another example of this, these, all these Bible stories I'm going to mention, they should flood your mind every time we talk about these kind of topics. And, and if your mind is not flooded with Scripture whenever there's any passage being taught, it's because you're not reading the Bible enough. As Christians, we start at the beginning and we read through the Bible. And then when we're done, we do it again. You know, I, I served with this one pastor, and he's like an amazing individual, um, way smarter and better than me in so many ways. But one of the things he did, he actually read the Bible five times a year. You know, it's kind of my goal to read it in a year. 
if I don't finish it in a year, <laughs> that's okay. Uh, if it takes me a year and a half, it takes me a year and a half, I don't worry about it. I just start and I read, and when I'm done, I start again. And by the way, that's not for pastors. That is not for elders. That is not for people in leadership. That is for every single Christian. That's what you start teaching your kids to do when they're two and three, is to you read the Bible to them, and then is when they can read. In fact, that's actually the most important reason for school is so that your kids can learn how to read so they can read the Bible. It doesn't matter if they can read anything else. Like that's one of the most important things is our kids need God's word in their life to shape the way they think about things. Think about Genesis 4, right? Uh, Cain and Abel are making an offering. God doesn't accept uh, Cain's offering, but he accepts Abel's offering, and Cain gets mad. And God actually has a conversation with him. He goes, Cain, dude, well, I didn't say that, but he's like, you're doing the wrong thing. Why are you so upset? You're doing what's wrong. If you do what's right, then won't you be happy? Like God himself, in a gracious, loving way, addresses Cain. And after Cain hears what God says, you know what he does? He gets up and goes and kills his brother. Like that's his response to God's direction and guidance. So there's no guarantee that if we do the right thing, that it's going to turn out okay. But God's pretty clear. He tells Timothy, um, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who's judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in kingdom, preach the word. Um, he says, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. And that's what pastors are supposed to do. Do you have any idea how often people will go sit in front of a pastor and say, hey, I have this major sin issue in my life? People who have been raised in the church, grown up in the church, and they'll sit and they'll talk about that. And pastors will approach people sometimes the way Eli approached his parents, his kids. Hey, that, that's not a good idea. But there's no sense of urgency. Uh, when a person just hears, they talk about it, and they just say, no, nah, I'm walking down a life, a path of sin. And then it's like, well, okay, everybody makes their own choices. There is no calling for rescue. There's no, okay, who are all your friends? Who are your family members? I'm going to go get everybody involved. I'm going to do everything I can do to address this. They just passively walk people, walk, watch people walk off a cliff like Eli did with his kids. You know, um, it goes on and it says, for the time is coming when people will not endure um, sound teaching, healthy teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Um, you know, we have to, like, address these kind of things. Before we get into the details of this passage, we have to think about why is this ignored in so many lives? You know, if you have guys ever read First uh, Corinthians, or I'm sorry, First Kings 13, First Kings chapter 13, um, that's a story I'm not expecting you to be able to recognize this story from the reference, but there's this prophet, and God tells him, go pronounce judgment on a disobedient king. And I want you to go straight there. I want you to pronounce the judgment on the king. And then I want you to leave. Don't even go back the same way you came. Go a different direction. 
And so he just walks out and he goes, starts going a different direction. And somebody heard uh, him say, like the king, after he delivers the message, the king's like, hey, come back to my house, come eat. And the prophet says, no, God told me not to go. He said, I have to come here, leave by a different way. I cannot eat. I cannot drink. I just need to immediately leave town. And so this king, he, leave, he leaves, and somebody heard him say that to the king. And, and then this other prophet comes to him, like on his, he's on his way out of town, and this other prophet comes to him, and he says, hey, um, come to my house and eat. And the prophet, he says the same thing that he said to the king, hey, God told me not to. He said, leave by a different route. Don't stop and eat anywhere. And... Uh, the, the guy who went to go get this prophet that delivered the message, he goes, well, I'm a prophet too. And God told me you're supposed to come to my house and eat. And he goes, okay. <laughs> he goes to his house and eats. So he's sitting at the table and he's eating. And the prophet who invited him to come eat at his house stands up and says, because you disobeyed God, you are not going to be buried with your fathers. In fact, when you leave here, you're going to be killed on the road. And then the story is that this disobedient prophet gets up, walks out, a lion kills him on the road. And then the prophet who misleads him goes and gets his body. You know, it's like, what a weird, bizarre story. God tells somebody to do something. He's kind of obeying. And then a different prophet tells him to disobey, and God kills him for it. I just want you to know, when you read the Bible about how to address sin um, in your family, in somebody's life, uh, Matthew 18, this passage, um, somebody who calls himself a Christian, lives in hard-hearted, rebellious sin, don't even eat with them. Um, you think about how to apply that in your life and ask your friends, what should I do? <laughs> you want to know what everybody's going to tell you? Almost everybody's going to say, yeah, don't do that. When you think about First Kings chapter 13, you can go to whole churches, you can find pastors, you can find spiritual leaders to tell you anything you want to hear. And often in your heart, there's this desire not to obey God. You have sinful desires, and it's so easy to just go find a friend that will tell you to do the wrong thing, and it'll make you feel at peace. But if you've been reading your Bible, and if you read First Corinthians or First Kings chapter 13, you will know it does not matter what somebody tells you. What matters is what God told you. You know, we have churches today. You know, the Bible says, I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. So talking about the teaching role in a church, you want to know what churches around here do? Churches everywhere. Um, they say to themselves, hey, where can I find a woman <laughs> who does not care what God says? And let's have her be our pastor. And so then they'll ordain a woman. They'll say, come be the pastor of our church. Let's find somebody who disregards God and have them be our main teacher. Or all the denominations right now that are ordaining people who live a homosexual life. And they'll say, come, let's ordain you. Come be our pastor. Okay, let's find some people who are hard-hearted who disregard the plain things that God says, come be our pastor, our teacher, our leader. It's all over, isn't it? Well, just because a spiritual person, a person in spiritual leadership or a friend tells you something doesn't make it okay. What God says 
is what matters. So when I read that 1 Corinthians passage <laughs> about remove this person, like, isn't that just sharp and decisive? I mean, Paul just says, he didn't say go talk to him, plead with him, see if, see if he'll change. He just says, remove him. Um, I think it's important for us to think about actually what was going on in Paul's heart. How did Paul feel about that? Because the same struggles that you have to obey God in your life, that the difficulty of actually making that decision and doing that, Paul felt that himself. Now, let me read it to you. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. So Paul writes a second letter to the Corinthians. He's actually going to talk about this situation later. This is what he says. This is 2 Corinthians 2, 4. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. When Paul wrote this, when he said remove that person, he was not callous. He was not harsh. He was overwhelmed. He was brokenhearted. He was crying. He says not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. See, when you, when you care more about yourself than other people, you, you care more about your, yourself than your kids, you care more about yourself than your friends at church, when they're wandering into sin, when they're doing sinful things, you won't say anything to them. Because if you do say something to them, they'll get mad at you. Uh, potentially, you'll feel like a mean person. Potentially, you'll, you'll face this persecution. It's so much nicer to just go, oh, I'm loving and kind and compassionate and, and I'm not hard on my kids. Way easier, but that's actually not love. Paul wrote to them and he said these hard things to them because he loved them. And then he goes on and he says, now if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not with me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. Verse 6 and that he's going to talk about this guy. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. You should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. This guy repents, he comes back to the church, and the church is not loving him and welcoming him in. And Paul has to write and say, love this guy, welcome him. He has repented. Forgive him. And he says, um, he says, so I beg you, reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether or not you're obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, it has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. You know, Satan wants the church, he wants Christian parents, he wants Christian friends to be lax, to be uncaring, to ignore sin. That's what Satan wants. Or he wants us to be critical, harsh, judgmental, and beat up on people and shoot the wounded. Those are the two things that Satan wants, and neither of those is what God says we should do. Yeah, Paul talks about this again in chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 8. He says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. <laughs> Although I did regret it. 
for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. I mean, Paul's like, ultimately, I don't regret what I did, but man, right after I sent that letter, I felt terrible. I regretted it. I'm like, oh my goodness, how could I do that? That's so painful. He's picturing this guy that got thrown out of the church. He's picturing this challenging thing that this church had to do. He's thinking about all the ways that he's addressed their sin, the way he said to them, I'm coming to you with a rod if you don't deal with this. Like he threatens them. He's powerful. He addresses it. He's not passive like Eli. Hey, guys, it's not a good idea. And he says, I regretted it. He was in so much internal pain and torment for sending that letter. But he actually loved him enough to do it. And at the end, of the, at the end he's like, I don't regret it. Verse 9, for as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through, for, through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See, there are some people who just the natural consequences of sin will make you uh, discouraged. It'll depress you. There's all kinds of people who live in rebellion against God. They are miserable. They are sad. They are brokenhearted. Their life is just one disaster after another. That is not godly re uh, repentance. That's just sadness because everything you do is wrecking your life. But godly grief leads to repentance, and repentance is a change. And you just live a sinful life and you're miserable. That's not repentance. That's just worldly grief. But you have godly grief. You're going to feel the pain. You're going to feel the difficulty. And you're going to say, instead of turning away from God, I'm going to turn to God. That is repentance. Um, so we talked about last week how uh, sin requires intervention and that the purpose of intervention is restoration. It's not to damage or harm a person. It's not to give them what they deserve. It's to heal them. It's like a doctor doing surgery. It's, it, the purpose of the pain is, is help. I want to talk about what he says in verse 5. It says this in 1 Corinthians uh, 5, 3 through 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, my spirit is present with the power of our Lord. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You know, I want to talk to you for just a moment about this whole phrase, turned over to Satan. That should terrify you. When you think about that, when you hear that, you should be terrified by that. When the church comes together and they've addressed sin in a person's life and, and your friends have come to you and they've said, hey, what you're doing is disregarding Scripture, you know, a lot of people are like, hey, in my opinion, you should do this. Or, or I, I read the Bible and this is what I think based on that. You know, the way that we minister to people actually is we, we read what the Bible says, we sit down in front of them, and we actually just read verses to them. Because guess what? Well, this is what I think. Who cares what you think? Um, what matters is what God thinks. See, we live in a world where people think they can have their own truth. Now, I've just decided this sinful life that I'm choosing, it, it's okay, it's good, it, it's not going to hurt me. I, my truth is that, is that this is okay. You know, it doesn't matter what your truth is, because when you die, you're going to stand before God, you're going to face his judgment, and he doesn't care about your truth. 
Um, we are not the ones that determine anything. God's truth is the only truth that matters. You may sit around with your religious friends who have different views, and who cares what you or anyone else thinks? What God says is true, it is right, and that's what we care about. And God says that when a person comes to you, addresses your sin, and reads scripture to you, which is what we should all be doing when we address sin in people's lives, we read scripture to them. And a person hears that and disregards it. The next step is for everyone else who knows to come alongside and to talk to the person and to plead with them and to pray for them, their friends, other people who know. And then what you do is when they refuse to listen to them, you tell the church. And then every single person in the church starts praying for them. Everybody who knows them goes to talk to them and say, what are you doing? You need help. And if they refuse to listen to the church, they are removed from fellowship. They say, you can't come back anymore. And what a powerful message that sends because everybody's welcome in the church. It doesn't matter what your sin issue is. Come, come here. We love you. It doesn't matter if prostitutes could come here. Mafia hitman could come here if he kills people during the week and then comes to church on Sundays, welcome. Not if he says he's a Christian. You know, think about the way people share the gospel. People share the gospel with the complete absence of this passage in mind. They'll say things like, I'm sharing the gospel with my homosexual friends. And they're actually, um, they're, the sin of homosexuality is not their issue. Their issue is their rebellion against God. So actually, I'm just going to share the gospel with them, and I'm not going to bring up the life that they're living. Think, think about that. So they pray to receive Christ, and then we bring them to the church. We baptize them on Sunday morning, and then the next Sunday morning, we kick them out because they're living in rebellion against God. Or a mafia hitman, right? Uh, we share the gospel with him. He becomes a Christian on, sun, on Saturday comes to church on Sunday, we baptize him. On Monday, he goes and shoots a couple people who are going to testify against the mob. And, and we call him a Christian and join our church family. You know, every time they preached the gospel, they preached repentance. And uh, what must I do to be saved, Acts chapter 2? Repent. And so people's sin issue isn't what keeps them out of heaven but that has to become a major part of every conversation on salvation. You share the gospel with somebody, okay, how does that impact this sin commitment in your life? It, it, it's a part of everything. But you know, you can always tell people who come up with what it means to be sensitive and gracious and kind and merciful and what people tell you to leave out of the conversation. Well, they haven't read the Bible and thought about what it actually says. And so he says here, he says, um, remove this man, deliver him over to Satan. That should be terrifying to you. You know, Paul did this before. He did this in 1 Timothy. It says, I charge and I entrust to you, Timothy, my beloved child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding a faith and a good conscience. And then he says this, by rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. And uh, he says, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I, am ha I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's what the Bible says about Satan. 
It says that uh, Satan is a roaring lion. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That's Satan. That is our world, by the way. Satan is destroying people um, with our world system. Like, think about this. You, we, we've told little children, oh, yeah, your, your gender, your sexuality, it could change. You can question that. And we take five, six, seven, eight, ten-year-old kids, start giving them drugs, start doing surgery to destroy them. Like, that is so incredibly abusive. And there's a guy in Canada who when, when his kid is going through a divorce, his kid starts doing this, and when he refuses to affirm it, he loses custody. He's not allowed to leave Canada. He's being charged with a crime. We have a culture and a society that wants to destroy and harm and maim people. That is Satan, a roaring lion seeking someone to devour you know, the Bible says that Satan is the adversary. That's what Satan means. Devil is slander. He's a beast. He's a dragon. He's a lion. He's a tempter. He's a thief. He is a murderer. He's a liar, giving all kinds of false doctrine. He blinds people's minds. He destroys people, and he is evil. So that's who Satan is. <laughs> I'm going to hand him over to Satan. That should terrify you. I want to talk to you about something else, the power of Satan. It's unbelievable. Jude chapter 1 verse 9 says, But when the archangel Michael, okay, the archangel Michael, when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Michael the archangel sees Satan. And says, I am no match for him. Uh, God, can you take care of this? That's how Michael, the archangel, thinks about Satan. And we got all these people running around, breaking the neck of the devil, stomping the neck of the devil, all this stuff. Michael, the archangel's not doing that. He's saying, God, only you can help with this. Like, that's the power. That's the evil. That's how much Satan hates you. And when you disregard God and you walk into a life of sin, part of church discipline is we're, we're doing everything we can to rescue people from that. But when you walk into that, you are turned over to Satan. Now, I want you to think just for a moment, and you guys know this because while everybody else doesn't read the Bible, all of you guys do. We know that. Uh, remember Job? Satan comes before God and he says, hey, my servant Job, have you thought about that guy? You know, God says that to Satan and Satan goes, yeah, I've thought about him. Um, but he didn't fear you for nothing. You've put a hedge around him, his house, all that he has on every side. You've blessed the work of his hands, his possessions. You've increased in the land. Satan's been watching Job. Satan hates Job. Satan wants to destroy Job. You want, you want to know why he hasn't? God said no. See, Michael is afraid of Satan. <laughs> Lord rebuke you. I guess who's not afraid of Satan? God. Um, Satan, God says whatever he wants, he limits Satan. He is the ultimate power. Satan is nothing compared to God, like absolutely nothing. You know, Satan wants you dead. He wants you destroyed. When you get up and you get in your car and you drive to somewhere and you get there, 
Uh, that's not because Satan doesn't want to destroy you. Unbelievers in the world, do you know why they're living? They're living because God is giving them more time. Satan wants to kill them. He is a murderer, wants to kill every single person, even wicked people who love Satan, who are following Satan, who are pursuing Satan. Satan wants to kill because if he can kill you before you come to know the Lord, you will be in hell forever. And so Satan wants you in hell. And the only reason you're not in hell, the only reason anything in your life is okay, and even as a believer, the only reason you survive is because God protects you. That's why. And um, just when you think about Satan's hatred and his power, Satan's been watching Job. He wants to destroy Job. And um, as he has this desire to destroy Job, God says to, to Satan, okay, you can, you can destroy everything Job has, but you can't touch him, his body. You cannot hurt him personally. And so Satan, in a moment, plans four people to arrive for Job. And in a second, Job's world eva- uh, evaporates. Um, he, uh, his, his sons and daughters are eating and drinking in their oldest brother's house, and a messenger comes, and he just says, hey, the oxen are plowing, the donkeys are feeding, the Sabaeans fell on them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Satan works it out to destroy um, Job's servants and destroy his, his uh, animals, and he, t- he leaves one person alive so that they can carry the message to Job. And that guy runs up, and he delivers this, this message. And then he goes on, and again, while he's speaking, t- Satan has this timed out perfectly because he destroys a different group in a different area, and he times it. So there's one person left to run up to him and tell him that uh, while I was speaking, there another came up, and he said, your sheep and your servants are consumed. I'm the only one who's left. And while he was speaking, another one came and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and did a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was speaking, another came and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine, their oldest brother's house. A great wind came, struck the four corners of the house. It fell on the young people. They're all dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. That's how Satan timed it where everything in Job's life melts down in a second. He's got the timing down perfectly so that he gets a message from four people in four different areas at the exact same time. Being turned over to Satan should terrify you because that's what Satan wants to do to you. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira show up to church on Sunday morning. They lie about their offering. Uh, Ananias comes in first, beginning of the service, like there's this really long, you know, service. And Ananias comes in, lies about how much he gave. God kills him. These young people come grab him, take him out of the church. Hours, hours later, his wife walks in, tells the same lie. She falls down dead, and people pick her up and carry her out. 1 Corinthians 11, we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, there's people who are living in sin like this people who are disunified they're they're not loving each other they're hostile toward each other they're not addressing you know all the sin that paul's been talking about in chapter four um you're following other people you're siding with one person against another he's talking to them about that and these christians are living that way they're not loving people the way god says they have disunity and then they go celebrate the lord's supper you want to know what paul tells them first corinthians 11 Man, you're not judging yourself rightly. 
you're not being careful about your conscience. And so a number of you are sick, and some of you sleep. That means die, because you're not taking the Lord's Supper in a worthy way. Well, what's a worthy way? That's a repentant heart. You know, if some people say, well, this is really important. we got to get all the sinners out of church to protect the purity of the church. <laughs> if we got the sinners out of church, there wouldn't be anybody left. Like, there'd be nobody left to, like, I couldn't come. Sinners couldn't be here. I couldn't be here. You know, there is such a big difference between being a person who struggles with sin, between being a person who sins and a person who repents, and being a person who just says, actually, I don't care what God says. I'm just going to do whatever I want. Those are two different things. And when a person says, I don't care what God says, I'm going to do what I want. That person's not a Christian. Um, and that's part of what is happening here. Is Paul saying, you don't take a person who lives like they're not a Christian, label them a Christian, tell them they're a Christian, and have them sit in church as though living in rebellion against God is normal. And so... Um, we're going to finish this up next week. We will have a part three. What we are going to do is we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. You know, sin is serious. You know, James tells us at the end of James chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, that if any of you pursues your brother and turns a sinner from the error of their way, uh, you will save their soul, and you will cover a multitude of sins. Man, we're gracious, we're loving, we're merciful. If you're blowing it in your life, if you have s serious sin issues in your life, you don't hide that. You show up on Sunday morning, you talk to other people who are struggling, um, and you get grace, grace and mercy and kindness and point to, pointed to God's wisdom in his word, God's mercy, God's grace, God's compassion, God's kindness. But you should never live in hard-hearted rebellion against God. And when you see people who love you, people who call themselves Christians, people who've been raised in church, people that you sit next to, and you see them wandering off in sin, yeah, you shouldn't sit there quiet. You shouldn't ignore that. And by the way, that's the reason that online church doesn't work like this is the reason you need this somebody else may need to be rescued today and you may need to be rescued tomorrow I'm not beyond this there may come a time in my life when every Christian who knew me needs to pursue me and encourage me and try to try to call me back to faithfulness that could happen it could happen to David. It could happen to me. If it could happen to the faithful men and women that I know, it could happen to me. And this doesn't happen when you don't go to church. That's why when you become a Christian, um, first of all, you need to understand the gospel. But the second thing you need to understand is what it means to go to church and be a part of a church family and function in a church. That is the, I, I think when it comes to teaching people what it means to be a believer, that's one of the most important things we got to teach people. And if we do this right, 
we don't actually get to the edge of the cliff because long before we are there, we have people who love us and encourage us and care about us that are calling us back. And that's a healthy church. And that's who we need to be. So I want to read this whole passage so you can think about this, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And just for some logistical things, we have tables in the front and the back of the room. And so when I finish, you can just go take the bread and the cup, take it back to your chair, take it when you're ready. And so there's, there's uh, four different stations to do that. Let me read this passage. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We're going to come back next week. And in this passage, it talks about how Jesus is our Passover lamb. He was the one who was killed for our sin. We go to heaven not because we're righteous. We go to heaven because Jesus is righteous and he died for us. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then look at verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So when we think about taking the Lord's Supper, we are remembering that we stand before God holy and righteous and saints because of the work of Jesus, not because of our work. But when we think about the fact that Jesus died for sin, when we think about the fact that sin separates us from God, we do not call ourselves Christians and disregard what God says about faithful obedience. We don't say to ourselves, well, I think I'd be happier if I did this. We say, no, what does God say will make me happier? What does God say will bless me? I trust and believe him. And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we, we don't celebrate it as people who don't sin, but we do celebrate it as people who repent when we sin. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for your kindness, for your word. God, I just ask that you would give us a sense of urgency about sin in our life. Lord, that we would be a, a place that doesn't feel a pressure. We don't feel like we're God or that we speak into other people's lives and tell them what to do. People have to obey us. But God, I pray that you would help us to be your loving, gracious, merciful mouthpieces. God, that we would encourage one another as we see the day drawing near, knowing that you're coming back and that the time for repentance will come to an end, not just for us as believers, but for unbelievers. God, give us a heart for the lost, a heart for each other. Most of all, give us a heart to please you, to love you, to obey you, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And so, Lord, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, God, convict us, bring us to repentance. And, Lord, help us to celebrate what you've done for us in your name.